0: Well, I hope we're going to be able to understand each other. I speak a language which is not all that common over here. It's called English. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> Anyone who is uh, familiar with writing knows that it's much more difficult to write a short story than it is to write a long story. You don't have as much maneuvering space. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is that with no education, he told the two best-known short stories in the whole world. And uh, both of them were off the cuff. (coughs) And both of them were in conflict situations. Uh, One of the language differences between America and England is that uh, when you look at yourself first thing in the morning, if you can bear the shock, (coughs) you see bags under your eyes. The English don't. The English see circles. (coughs) And uh, recently, there were a lot of people with five circles under their eyes because they have been staying up half the night watching the Olympics. (coughs) But in Jesus' day, they didn't watch the Olympics They didn't play football. They didn't play golf, basketball. What on earth did they do? Well, the answer is they had debates and they were very enthusiastic about debates. And some people were world-class debaters and they were very highly trained and they had lots of experience and they had fan clubs. And this is really what's happening in Luke chapter 10 he's very careful to tell us the context but it wasn't an official formal debate it was a bit like one I got conned into in about 1972 uh, I didn't know it was supposed to be a debate but I found myself in a university context at a faculty lunch suddenly in a debate <coughs> with somebody who recently has been described <coughs> as the world's most notorious atheist. <coughs> that was back in 1972. And he just wrote a new book in 2008, and uh, Collins, who published it, say on their blurb, the world's most notorious atheist changes his mind. Isn't that good? <clears throat> but this is a conflict situation that Jesus is not warned about, but he's up against a world-class debater. See, Jesus had lots of enemies then, as he does now. He has never been a universally popular figure. There have always been those who hated him, and always those who want to discredit him and undermine whatever he was seeking to do. <clears throat> and this is what's happening here. And uh, the ones who are trying to discredit him are the most influential. And they've decided to get him trapped into a debate with a world-class debater when he is an uneducated street preacher. And they expect it to be a completely one-sided debate in which Jesus will be made to seem ridiculous about the same as it would be if... I would have found myself in a one-to-one showdown with Sean White in the (laughs) halfpipe, snowboarding, when I've never been on a snowboard in my life. (laughs) And I don't think I'm going to start now. Mind you, we did go paragliding for the first time last year, and it's great fun. So the lawyer opens the debate. And uh, probably sarcastically he says, Rabbi, because Jesus wasn't officially a rabbi. Mind you, he didn't have quite a lot of students, so he possibly could have meant it. Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting uh, how people would address that question now. See, if you were asked that question today, what would you say? <laughs> you would perhaps trot out John three sixteen or the four spiritual laws or something. I <clears throat> oh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how you get eternal life, right? <clears throat> um, in my own nature, I'm really not a very nice person at all and uh, if I'd been asked the question, I would have said, what a dumb question. (laughs) Thought you were a lawyer. If you're going to inherit something, you only inherit it because somebody else decides to leave it to you in their will, and then they conveniently die. And there is nothing you can do to help them do that. If you help them die, you won't inherit it. But... One of the remarkable things about Jesus is, he didn't preach what he practiced. He practiced it first, and then he preached. And he preached, "Love your enemy." And this guy is, in a sense, an enemy. And the whole setup is to destroy the entire mission that Jesus has. But Jesus actually loves the lawyer. Usually, when we get into debate situations, it brings in the ego and the conflict and both sides get angry. (coughs) But Jesus loves the lawyer. And he responds in classic, Jewish debating fashion. He answers a question with another question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you read in the law? I don't think any of us would have answered it that way. But see, the lawyer is not interested in getting eternal life. Otherwise, John 3.16 might be very appropriate. He's not interested in getting eternal life. His whole purpose is told is this. He stood up to test Jesus. He's trying to find fault with Jesus. That's the whole purpose of this thing. So Jesus responds with another question. Classic debating style. It's what the rabbis do. And some people get very frustrated with it. Some people once asked a rabbi, why can you never answer a simple question? Why do you always respond to a question with another question? And the rabbi said, what's wrong with the question? <laughs> he could also, of course, have been a modern politician. <laughs> and the rabbi's interesting is, uh, answer is really interesting. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. The interesting thing about that is you couldn't actually find it in the law. Not like that. You could find it as two separate statements that weren't even in the same book, two different books. And almost certainly the first person to put them together was Jesus himself. And he'd been teaching that way. And, and so this lawyer has done some preparation for this encounter. He probably didn't go to listen to Jesus himself, but probably sent some of his students to tell him what Jesus had been teaching. And so the lawyer's quote is actually a quote from Jesus. Although, based, of course, on Old Testament law. Ever thought about it? If you want to inherit the eternal life, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Out of the number of days you've lived, how many days, whole 24-hour periods, Have you succeeded in keeping that one? And with all your soul, oh, you're not sure what that is. Forget that one then. With all your strength, (coughs) ever manage that one for a whole day? With all your mind. See, Christianity is not ignorant believism. There's an intellectual dimension in Christian belief. So how are you doing based on the law? And of course, you might say, well, okay, I have not been doing too well up till now, but I'll turn over a new leaf from from now on, I'm going to keep it. So would that work for a mass murderer? Yeah. You know? I, okay, I've murdered a few dozen people in the past, but I'm not going to murder anymore. Is that okay? See, but before the law, where is this lawyer? Or for that matter, where are you? Based on performance, we're in the most serious trouble before the judge of the universe. And what looked like a really simple debate and this intellectual genius is going to make mincemeat of this ignorant street preacher, he's suddenly in a very embarrassing position. We've hardly started yet. But there's the other bit, isn't there? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that might be more comfortable ground. Because in their thinking, their thinking was this. You must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In fact, Jesus referred to it. You've heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemy. But the lawyer still has the traditional view. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So now he comes up with this question, who is my neighbor? Let's ignore the other bit. I don't want to talk about wh- how I am with God, but let's talk about the neighbor. Bit, you see? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? And what he hopes now is that Jesus is going to define, well, this is your neighbor and this is your enemy. And then he's going to say, well, what about this guy? Because he's got a foot in both camps. And uh, the more you try and define it, the more impossible it gets. That's what he's hoping for. And uh, there's a mini revival amongst his fan club when he comes up with this smart question. (coughs) And it is in response to that question, who is my neighbor, (coughs) that Jesus tells the story. Who is my neighbor? See, I don't want to waste love on somebody who's not my neighbor now, do I? So who is he? And Jesus says, well, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And of course, it is down. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level and Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. And it's definitely down. And it's a notorious road and all his original hearers could picture it. And it's a narrow dirt road. It is not the Nimitz Highway or something. (coughs) It's a narrow dirt road winding in between rock outcrops and thickets of thorn bushes and a great place for ambush, for robbers to lie in wait or for wild animals to attack. And people didn't normally travel it alone. And it's about eight feet wide. And this man is very ill-advisedly traveling alone down this road and predictably he gets attacked. And everybody is into the story immediately. And they can see this guy getting attacked and he's attacked by bandits who are very cruel and very cynical and they take literally everything, including every stitch of clothing. People didn't sunbathe in those days. You could hardly sell suntan cream, <coughs> and nearly all of the body had never been exposed to sunlight—just the face and the hands and the feet. The rest of it was always covered up. And this skin that had been covered up for a lifetime is suddenly left on the road. Very cynical. He's unconscious like a piece of garbage on the side of the road. The scene is very simple. Everybody's picturing this. And now there comes a priest. Looks at him and passes by on the other side. When I heard that first time in my English culture, the whole lesson was this. How could he possibly do that? Nobody even thought that when Jesus told the story. That was not the point. He's a priest. That means he is one of the wealthy ones in the upper echelons of society. He's leaving Jerusalem. When does a priest leave Jerusalem? Answer, when he's finished his work. And the priests worked, actually, one month out of 12. Wasn't that a great job? <laughs> one month out of 12. There were so many of them, they're in 12 divisions and they rotated and any one time there's only one division functioning. So in one month, they, they earn their year's wages. If he's completed his month's work, He's completed his year's work. He's got his year's wages. He's leaving Jerusalem. (laughs) He does not want to be attacked when he's carrying his year's wages. He couldn't, unfortunately, (coughs) just transmit it electronically to his bank wherever he lived. He's got it in cash. (coughs) He's writing because he's wealthy. And it is quite obvious that there are dangerous people around because this man is evidence of it. So, uh, he's in a hurry. (coughs) Now, he doesn't know who the guy on the side of the road is. The question is, remember, who is my neighbor? Usually, there will be two clues that would tell you whether this is a friend or a neighbor or an enemy. One is what is he saying? The other one is, what is he wearing? Well, he's unconscious, so he's not saying much, and he's wearing even less. So it is hard to tell, isn't it, whether he's a neighbor or an enemy? Who knows? But there's an even more significant question, and that is, is he alive or is he dead? See, death for the Jew is unclean. If you swatted a fly and you're a Jew and you killed it, then you'd be unclean. Which would mean you couldn't eat for the rest of that day, you couldn't talk to anybody, you couldn't pray, you couldn't drink, you couldn't work. You had to isolate yourself and wash yourself and your clothes and stay in isolation till the end of the day. That's an ordinary person. A priest was specifically forbidden to ever have contact with a dead body. The first priest was Aaron. He was not allowed to touch his sons when they died. He couldn't bury them. Somebody else had to do it. If a priest actually had contact with a dead body accidentally, and no priest would ever do it deliberately, if he accidentally had contact with a dead body, he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to stay there for a week. He had to offer a sacrifice every day. He would be disgraced in the eyes of his fellow priests for being careless. And then he would leave. Very expensive. A week's lodging and seven sacrifices plus professional discredit. But here's the crucial thing. He didn't have to touch a dead body in order to be unclean. In the law it says this, if he gets within four cubits, how much is four cubits? Six feet. So what's he going to do? He'll pass by on the other side. He will make sure he doesn't get within contamination distance and therefore he can't tell whether the guy's dead or alive. And as Jesus says this, and the priest passes by on the other side, everybody says, well, of course he did. What else would he do? Following him comes a Levite. The Levite is a temple worker. He's not a priest. He's not on the same level as a priest. He's not as wealthy as a priest. He is walking. The priest is his boss, And the priest is his example. And if the priest is riding and the guy is walking, the priest has passed him. And when he gets to where the guy is, he knows that his boss has just gone ahead of him. And the boss has left him there and his example, so he's going to do the same. Of course, he's still no surprises. And as they think about it, they think, well, you know, we've had a priest, we've had a Levite, now we'll just get some ordinary Joe. No, this is where the punchline comes. (laughs) Because Jesus absolutely shocks them when he says, now there came a Samaritan. A what? Samaritans were not popular in Jewish society. It's the kind of response you'd get if you suggested... Inviting Osama bin Laden to a George W. Bush family picnic—it's <coughs> not going to happen. <coughs> and there's a real shock factor. Everybody, call, a Samaritan? Ugh! <coughs> and he's a wealthy Samaritan at that because he's riding. <coughs> when he comes without a thought for his own safety, and this is another wealthy guy, and he's no idea. Any more than the priest had, who this person is lying at the side of the road. He gets down beside the body and begins to treat the wounds. And the road is filthy. See, the traffic, donkeys and camels and horses, and they're not house trained, much less street trained. And it's a dirt road, literally. And he is down on his knees in this den. He's a rich guy. And it's hot and it's sweaty and there are flies all over the place as flies gather in these kind of circumstances. And he gets blood on himself. And he pours oil and wine into them and bandages his wounds. He's not carrying a first aid kit. What does he use for bandages? His shirt expensive shirt, silk one with his initials on the pocket. (coughs) And he rips it up makes the bandages and takes care of the guy, picks him up. Oil, blood, (coughs) wine, dirt, puts him on his animal, which means he's going to walk now. How far? Six miles, eight miles, ten miles? Who knows? And uh, he is humbly serving this person without the thought of what it's doing to himself and the risk he's taking doing this and the effort involved in walking when you don't normally walk. Arriving at the inn, he doesn't say, okay, I've done all this now. <clears throat> you can take care of him." He stays the night with him and gives the man the average two months' wages. Give him whatever he needs. If he needs any more than this, I'll give it when I return. Now he turns to the lawyer. If you were the guy in the road who would be your neighbor? That is a seriously embarrassing question. Because if you'd said to him at the beginning, okay, you have three choices. You have a priest, a Levite, or a Samaritan. Which one is your neighbor, would you think? Priest, of course. Same echelon of society. Respected, religious, important, wealthy. We're buddies. We're in the same club. (laughs) If you were the guy on the road, who would you say is your neighbor? He can't, of course, bring himself to even say the word Samaritan. I suppose the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, great, you go do that. (laughs) (coughs) And what he's really saying is this. You don't like the first bit. You don't want to talk about loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. You're not too sure about your record on that one. And you think this one's easier, do you? As we said earlier, Jesus practiced and then preached. And he has already come and already committed himself to rescuing you and me. And in fact, the Samaritans referred to, the Jews referred to Jesus as a Samaritan. Didn't we say, you're a Samaritan and you've got a demon? They knew, of course, that ethnically he was not a Samaritan, he was a Jew. But to them, the word Samaritan was a huge insult and it also implied, outsider, you're not one of us. And sure enough, he was not one of us. He really is an outsider from a lot further out than the Samaritans were. And he had come into our world. And see, Jesus loves this lawyer. Uh, We may not like him at all. Jesus loved him. And really wanted to rescue him, really wanted to answer his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing you've got to do is realize this. There is absolutely nothing you can do. If (coughs) the lawyer meditated on this dialogue, and I'm quite sure he would, he would never forget it. In about three minutes, he has been stripped of all his confidence and all his self-righteousness. if he eventually sees himself as helpless as the man lying on the side of the road with nothing to offer, he may then see Jesus as a Samaritan coming from outside and coming down not just into a bit of donkey dung, but coming to take upon himself all the guilt and all the shame, all the rottenness and defilement that the human race has cooked up over the centuries, yours and mine. And he is taking a massive risk he would spend 33 years on earth one sin and he would not get back and he came to us in our need as sinners and he died for us he paid for every single sin past, present and future That's not all he did. Samayan didn't just bind the man up and leave him lying by the side of the road. He took him to the inn and had him taken care of. He didn't ask the guy, the innkeeper, to pay anything. He didn't ask the victim to pay anything. No, he didn't say, you know, here's my address. When you can, you can pay me back. And he said, whatever else he needs, see, he gets it. And I will pay it. I'm taking total responsibility for this person's future. He has no claim on me. I don't even know who he is. But I'm taking total, respons- total responsibility for his future see Jesus didn't just come and die for your sins he rose again and gave himself to you having given himself for you on the cross he now gives himself to you for life there's something I'd like us to get hold of and uh, I don't want to be juvenile, but three lines Jesus, everything that God is, to achieve everything that God plans in me. You say that with me? Jesus. Everything that God is to achieve everything that God plans in me. One more time. Jesus. Everything that God is to achieve everything that God plans in me. See, that's the wonder of being a Christian. Good as it is to know your sins are forgiven. What we need more than that is to be rescued from our weakness. So that we have everything that it takes for the rest of our days in the living Jesus who gives himself to us. That is why you become a Christian, not by receiving some facts, but by receiving a person. Jesus, risen from the dead. He died in weakness and shame, poverty. He rose in triumph and glory and power. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And probably none of you are taking flying lessons in order to get close to heaven because you expect him to take you there. See, it's a total package. His death covers every sin. His life covers every problem and every opportunity. And his resurrection takes us to be with him in heaven for eternity. Complete package. If the lawyer ever really got around to seeing himself as the helpless, hopeless person lying by the side of the road, he would know, stripped of all his righteousness, etc., that he thought was righteousness, he would know he would need a Savior. And in the very story that Jesus told him, uh, all the elements that he would need to know. Of course, we don't know what happened to him in his future, no idea. But we do know where we are, don't we? And you know where you are. And Jesus came from heaven down into the dirt with the offer of a total package for you. That's something worth celebrating, don't you think? Amen. Thank you.